Yo, is this thing on? Man, whatever. Walk with me. Welcome back to Walk with TFB. Tim Bryson here, and as y'all know, I'm a black millennial who is eager to have unfiltered conversation with authentic people centered on education, sport, and culture. Today we're walking with a lifelong brother uh, and really best friend. Uh, someone who has professional experience and expertise in educational policy, diversity and inclusion, compliance, higher education consulting. I mean, if you look up the words uh, jack of all trades, you're going to see this man's face um, in the dictionary. Um, for many of you all who know, Javi is someone who is a whole vibe, whether you've seen him in the gym as a fitness inspiration or at your local happy hour. Um, but I'll make sure that we uh, touch upon that uh, throughout this interview. Um, but most importantly, uh, this man is, is truly a generational leader. And so I'm super excited uh, that we get to spend some time talking with him today. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you all to Javi Rodriguez. Javi, talk to me, man. How you doing? <laughs> Soon to be Dr. Bryson. Uh, honestly, it is, I am blessed and highly favored today um, in spite of all that's going on today. And I really appreciate for Appreciate you for reaching out to me and, and having these conversations, especially on in, in Pride Months as we get ready to close it out. Most definitely. I mean, Javi, you've been on the front lines um, and in the streets of D.C. Um, I'm not talking front lines as far as COVID, you know, protection and prevention. I'm not talking in the streets as far as hanging out on the National Mall. Uh, but you've really <laughs> been up front and center um, with protests and activism within the District of Columbia. Uh, so talk to us about, like, what that experience has been you know, over the last several weeks. Yeah, um... So I, I was conflicted at first um, because, as, as we know, the COVID pandemic is, is raging through the country right now, and uh, a lot of people are, are being affected. Um, so as I started to see after the, George of, after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis um, and starting to see the uprising occur and spread throughout the country, um, inevitably obviously getting reaching D.C., um, I, I felt like it was like it, it was something that we had to do, right? Like it was um, a responsibility of our generation to stand up for the rights of others, right? Like there is a clear and present danger to the black community and all those who are part of the black community. Um, and I remember thinking back uh, in 2016, as we headed towards the election, um, and shortly after, when all the things were happening, you and I lived in Columbus, and we, we saw like the racial unrest that was occurring shortly after the president was elected. And thinking to myself, like, the issues that are now essentially thrown kerosene on, and they're just brought back to the spotlight, um, thinking like, what were people doing during the civil rights movement um, in which students were getting involved, right? Like, we, we always think about the giants of the community being on the spotlight, but also I like to, to look back at all the students that became involved and like were, were using their voice and, and their, lack of a better term, their bodies to, 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 to protest. Um, so got out there, uh, was involved in a couple, um, participated in some of the ones that happened uh, in front of the White House. Um, as the world has seen, it was not the prettiest uh, exchange. And, it, it was difficult, honestly. I, as a black man, I've had horrible experiences with the police officers um, in DC. It's it's different because the majority of the um, DC police department is minority, but we were clashing, for lack of better words, at the time with Secret Service um, police, and like they were predominantly and aggressively white. And I kid you not, I saw individuals smiling as they hit us with right shields, as they pepper sprayed people. Um, I think back directly at one of the instances where a young woman, a young white woman was in front of us and like blocking the, um, the Secret Service members from pushing forward when they were like pushing back the line. And as we were getting pushed back, she got caught in a barrier and they started like hitting her. So she was like pinned essentially to a barrier um, and I had to like, to separate them and like I was like yelling I could you know like next to this man saying like you are crushing her wow. um, 
I just that experience like just really jarring, um, but it definitely did push me to the forefront of the mind that like these are conversations that need to be had because these don't these sort of unrest don't come out of nowhere, right? Like they've been linked mm-hmm. to the inception of the country, um, and I thankfully also been re-energized seeing so many people now join the conversation, but also three weeks after we're seeing like this sense of normalcy mm-hmm. in, right? So it, it's been a lot, it's been a lot. No, I understand that. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the civil rights movement and students getting involved uh, with the protests. I mean, as we, I mean, as you kind of hesitated saying like, right, using their bodies um, and really getting in front of um, the civil rights movement. Your body has been in front of several uh, movements and protests within DC. Um, so my question to you is like, you know, what are you doing right now to take care of yourself? Like, I know that you're uh, big on fitness, you know, health and fitness, but what are you doing to take care of yourself right now? Um, I, I have really great conversations with my friends, honestly. Um, I do work out. I try to like put down the social medias, turn off the news and put something that's just places me in a completely different um, headspace because being fully transparent, um, the week after uh, all these things just kind of blew up in DC, like it, I, I, it was really hard. Like I, I found myself disassociating very quickly from work, mm. um, not really being like engaged and just being apathetic. So uh, I, I needed to turn off um, my phone, stop, uh, reading the news, stop seeing things happen. Um, and like just talking to my mom, uh, talking to my close friends in DC, reaching out to people uh, and finding ways to like energize myself without having to experience the trauma uh, via proximity. I feel like you and I have probably been doing the same things. <laughs> Like I said, I'm glad I get the chance to talk with you today, um, but also share our conversation because, um, I mean, even this first, you know, several minutes, you're, you're hitting on a lot of points that I know we'll spend more time talking about um, later in the interview. Um, but with that, I want to transition to our first segment, which what's your story? And so, Javi, you and I have known each other, I mean, looking at the calendar now, um, it's been five years um, mm-hmm. since we were undergrad interns at Missile uh, at The Ohio State University. Um, then got to spend two more years together with each other in our grad <laughs> program back at The Ohio State University. Um, and you and I both know, like, this what's your story question is one that's really central, uh, but also an initiation to student affairs um, and higher education. Um, but to give our listeners, you know, some context on who you are, you know, where you came from, what you believe in. Uh, Javi, talk to us about, you know, what is your story? Yeah. Um, so my name, Javi Rodriguez, uh, I was, my pronouns are he, him, his, which I think is very important. And we'll touch that later on. Uh, I was born in uh, Caguas, Puerto Rico. Um, so I am a product of uh, Puerto Rican mom, Dominican, Nigerian dad. Um, grew up on the island. We moved to the States uh, when I was, I think, turning nine or 10 um, and grew up in Florida, throughout Florida, moved around a lot, parts of the South. Um, I, the reason I say this, I think for me, it actually wasn't until I was really, really much older that I started to understand my racial identity because of growing up Latinx, like Afro-Latinx is how I identify. Um, We know that anti-Blackness and colorism are pervasive issues in the Latinx community. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of that outside of the colonization, the Anglonization and like all the issues that happened in the Caribbean, um, even after a lot of the islands rebelled was this idea of like assimilation into a new identity and blackness and even the aboriginal roots um of the Arawak people um like being seen as other and wanting to fit in so when you ask typically um, people from the caribbean like what are they if they're from dominican republic cuba or puerto rico it's always like oh, well i am x y and z right like the racial identity kind of comes second to nationality mm. or ethnicity for me, my mom is a very fair, you've met my mother, she is yep. like a very, very fair-skinned woman. Um, so through, when I was younger, we always got these weird looks of like my brother and I being like clearly much darker than my mom. Mm. Um, and being asked like, oh, like, who's the dad? Are they adopted? And like those things didn't really resonate with me until I was getting older. Um, 
and then being in Florida, uh, growing up in not so much the fun parts where like the N-word was dropped aggressively a couple of times in wrestling meets um, and uh, flag football meets, all these other things. And I was like, I don't know why I'm being called this. Like my understanding of my identity is that I am a Puerto Rican and Dominican. Um, I didn't find out about like the Nigerian roots until much later on in my life. Mm. So that was all a thing. And then coming out of the closet was a whole other thing. So I am a, a, a gay man. Um, I like to say queer just because like, it's just a lot more encompassing from my perspective. Um, and I, I associate my black, my racial identity, my ethnic identity and my um, sexual orientation like through lenses because it really has impacted the way that I navigate the world. Um, and going to school in South Florida, being a super multicultural city, it was great. Miami, Florida is beautiful in the sense that it's very rich in diversity. Um, but even seeing like the issues of um, marginalized communities oppressing one another. Um, and then moving to Columbus, the Midwest, where I clearly felt like a minority. Um, and then being from a... <laughs> uh, a heavily minority uh, queer community in Miami to being like very white queer community in Columbus, Ohio was like very awkward. So like, I think that's where I started seeing my identities clash more so mm. um, in which like my blackness was like kind of slapped into my face, not just in living in Columbus, um, but also being like a queer person in Columbus and seeing like, oh, it's not urban in here. And, like those small microaggressions that you're like, that doesn't happen. Um, and engaging with people that really believe themselves to be like well-intentioned, but they're still part participating. So I identify as like a, uh, an educator. I really do love education. Um, going back to school in a couple semesters, uh, well, a couple months. Yeah. Getting that, uh, that doctorate. Um, and living in DC, it's just been great, man. Like my, I, I feel at home here. I have, I've found a really great network that has supported me and I so am thankful I'm connected with people that I've met throughout my life. But uh, yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> I mean, so you mentioned, I mean, Columbus, Ohio is very white, um, very, very white. And our previous guest, uh, Brooklyn, spoke about that as well. Um, but thinking about, I mean, what you just mentioned in regards to your identities clashing, right? Like that blackness was like thrown in your face, uh, for lack of better words. Is there a moment in particular that you remember um, you know, vividly, you know, feeling and or seeing this, particularly, um, the, you know, during our two years in Columbus? Um, I think it might have first started, honestly, when we were interning in, uh, at the Ohio State University drew, through Missile. Um, so we were there for Pride. And so this is 2015. Obviously, Black Lives Matter movement is, is, started to other things. So it's like picking up steam. There's things occurring throughout the country. Um, when we moved forward into 2016, when we lived there, there was a, um, the first time that I actually saw like the queer community kind of like irk back in terms of a demonstration directly related to Black Lives Matter was when students from the Ohio State University and uh, black students, a lot of them queer, um, were participating in the march, in the Pride March, and they stopped the parade to um, draw attention to um, the deaths that were happening in Cleveland, Ohio, like literally two hours away, hour and a half away, of the Black trans women that were being murdered, right? So they wanted to have a moment of silence, and like you just saw these quote-unquote liberal individuals kind of be disgusted, the fact that their pride was being interrupted by black queer people honoring black trans women who like black trans women and um, brown trans women started pride right like stole right a riot um so seeing that just kind of really just irritated me and just seeing like lack of better words it was discussed um and i think that was a moment where i was like there are serious and aggressive issues within the queer community um so like it, the call is coming from inside the house type deal it was like that scenario for me i mean so even thinking about that experience you just shared 
um, and the experiences you had at least finding community, at least one of your communities um, in D.C. is your dodgeball team, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to us about the community um, that you found within the dodgeball um, scene. Yeah, so I, two things. So I have, so Stonewall Dodgeball is like that, it's a national um, Stonewall Dodgeball Sports, sorry, Stonewall Sports is like a national umbrella organization. In D.C., there's about 12 sports. Um, I joined first kickball, uh, and then I, I'm also part of dodgeball. So my kickball team really, uh, I was recruited by one of my friends. Uh, we've known each other since I was an undergrad, and uh, he was also in higher ed. Um, really, really big ups to Nathan. And then Corey Baker, who was our captain at the time, was like, hey, like, you're new to this, the, the city. The city is a lot. Like, he's been very up a lot. Um, yes, it is. yes, it is. And being queer in D.C., it's, I guess, like compounded by that. Um, so th my kickball team is predominantly black, uh, black and brown men. Mm. Which, when you see the league, you're like, okay, that, like, that's not the, the norm. And I don't say this to say that we don't have diversity. It's just that there are some teams, right? Like this is, quote, unquote, the chocolate city. Yep. We the largest um kickball league in the for a fact in the east coast um and some teams have like one or two black and brown men like there are teams where they look alike so it's just kind of like, like mind-blowing um and really finding that community of like i was supported and comforted by people who looked like me we had similar interests like we would go out we would dance um play sports on sundays uh and really have like those conversations of like, it shouldn't be this way when we are the flagship um, league in the country. And then in dodgeball, same thing. So I joined dodgeball because it's just a little bit more competitive. I love dodgeball in, in grade school and middle school. Who doesn't love throwing balls at each other? Um, no pun intended, but <laughs> he um, wanted to be in an environment where like it was a little bit more like high competitive. And even then like our current commissioner who is a really good friend of mine, Jimmy, it's very much about we need to acknowledge that we live in a city that's predominantly um, minority. We play in a Thurgood Marshall Center. Like diversity, equity, inclusion needs to be a forefront of, of dodgeball. So we've seen teams form of um, predominantly uh, Asian American or AAPI. We've seen a Black Boy Joy team be created. So crafting uh, spaces and teams where uh we're centering minorities it's just been really great and it's really what i think has uh made me fall in love with the city just seeing it happen in front of my eyes that's a great segue javi uh into our second segment which is trending topics and so i mean listening to how you're doing right now um listening to um the story you shared with us uh, up to this point um i mean the two words that come to mind for me are you know, this moment of dissonance uh, but then also revelation um, and in our offline conversation, we, you know, we talked about a lot of um, different trending topics that are, that are happening right now uh, as it relates to Pride Month, as it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement, well, excuse me, the all Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. as it relates to intersectionality. Um, and so I'm just going to throw the ball you know, in the air, no pun intended, to you and say, like, what's on your mind right now, Javi? Like, what's going on? I <laughs> for me, uh, I think... Several things. So I have seen like this disassociation between um, pride and Black Lives Matter and all Black Lives Matter, when in fact they are intertwined. Um, pride comes from the Stonewall riots that happened in New York in 1969, which were led by uh, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, which are a Black trans woman, a Brown trans woman. They so organized to call attention and to push back against police brutality that was happening in New York, right? Like it wasn't out of nowhere. Like they were being harassed, people were being sexually assaulted, people were being jailed for being queer in New York. And trans men said enough, right? So that um, started, kicked off the gay liberation um, group which then helped to organize and pride a more peaceful version occurred the next the following year um at the same time the right movement was still going on right like we have prominent um 
black men and, and black women who were queer and like were at the forefront of the movement, but then they were like not pushed out, but not not centered. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me right now, it's this continued conversation of if we're going to talk about intersectionality, we have to understand what it really means, right? Like any other word, it's become a buzzword. People are like, yeah, let's be intersectional, blah, 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 blah. But what does that mean? So when Kimberly Crenshaw, you and I know this, when she coined the legal term of intersectionality, it was not to say, yes, other people or we can all experience prejudice, right? It was to center in on the experience of the most vulnerable in how multiple marginalized identities are, um, are oppressed and that oppression is compounded within a system of oppression. I mean, real quick, I mean, and so real quick, because people, I mean, to your point, right, they use this term intersectionality when they're really discussing inter- intersecting identities. Mm-hmm. And so just, I mean, just break that down for those who are listening who may not know, or this is like their first or second time hearing intersectionality, like what that truly means and or looks like. Yeah. So an intersection identity, I think we can look at like the whole person, right? So we're not monolithic, right? We're individuals with multiple identities that help shape our understanding of the world and how we navigate the world. You can say that as an intersect, that's like, that's intersecting identities, right? Um, no two people, regardless of similarities, will navigate the world in the exact same way, right? That's a thing. Yep. Intersectionality is, is a, it's a framework in which you look at the system that's, um, that exists and you look at how um, sexism, uh, racism, classism, all these things are kind of like, an upside down pyramid. And then with each marginalized identity that you have, you fall lower and lower in this tier. So you're seeing like the the system is the actual pyramid and we're, depending on how many um, marginalized identities you possess, so like like you are the most vulnerable, you are disenfranchised the most. So that is politically, economically, socially. So she uses this, Kimberly Crenshaw uses this term to say, you need to understand that for some people, racism, uh, sexism, because she used black women um, in that Ford case or in the auto case, the systems of racism and gender compound their experience, right? So a black woman is fighting both racism and sexism. People are usually saying, oh, like, that's not a thing, like women's experience, etc. We see this most notably in the suffrage movement, right? Yep. We were women, now sorry women were granted allegedly the right to vote through the 19th amendment but in fact like there was a grace aggressive racism at the time black women were pushed towards the back even in the marches the 19th amendment became law of the land and black women were still not afforded the right to vote until the voting rights act of 1968 right so that's 40 years after the suffrage movement in the second wave of deliberate of um, feminism, we see the same thing, right? The ERA, it's a really great show, Mrs. America on Hulu, which I recommend, does a really interesting job of showing that this idea of liberalism and approaching us like, we're all the same people, so they with women. And you see characters in the show, um, Charlie Chisholm, the first woman to run for president, uh, black woman, pointing out the fact that there is a race issue within the liberal coalition of the women's um, uh, movement. So even we, we can look at all these other things of like, yeah, let's fight for a cause, but then we kind of trickle it down. So like the opposite of, of what we should be doing. You can use Reagan trickle economics as an example. You give the top 1% these taxes or whatever, and it will trickle down and positively impact other people. We know that that did not work whatsoever, right? Like that's a myth. Same thing with social change, right? If you are saying something matters, but you center the experience that is most palpable, so like the non-queer experience, the non-trans experience, non, um, these things that are like, yeah, I, I can get with this, right? Like that doesn't do anything. All it does is replicate a cycle. And we've seen it in different social movements of like, well, focus on the larger thing and then we will work on the other stuff like that just doesn't work um so for me for pride it's been very interesting to see people like kind of start tethering it back to like this is what pride is mm-hmm. um and really focusing when we're talking about black trans lives matter like as not as early but uh 
in 2018, there was a whole debacle in Philly when they added the black and brown stripe to the flag, right? Like yep, people yep. in a tiffy because they're like, oh, like the rainbow flag represents only sexuality, but it's like people's sexual orientation, people's queer experience is also informed by their racial identity. So a lot of messy stuff going on. And I don't know, when we were talking earlier, I mean, you mentioned, um, I mean, not just everything you just shared just now, but also the, the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how, um, you know, people historically um, associated with police brutality, um, mm -hmm. when that's not necessarily the case. Uh, so talk to us more about, uh, you know, what you, what you meant when you shared, with, shared that with me earlier. Yeah, um, so it's, <laughs> it's an interesting and really sad reality of like, Black Lives Matter was started by Black queer women to bring attention to racial injustice. The racial injustice at the time played out with a um, a boy being a black boy being killed, the individual not being held accountable. I'm not going to say his name because I honestly just, just he does not deserve that power because um, he somehow finds his way back on the news all the time. But so this movement that was meant to center or to to draw attention to the fact that a black life was lost. The man that did this was clearly in the wrong, lied, all these other things, but he was not held accountable. The message is about racial injustice. We, because of the pervasiveness of violence within um, policing, we see it most of like there's justice when a black person is killed, right? But that a racial injustice persists of like the criminalization of black and brown bodies, the implicit biases of individuals uh, in positions of power. So it's about saying we need to address the deep cultural issues that persist in our country. And that very quickly became focused on police brutality, on only on black men, when black women are also dying, black trans women are also dying due to violence and injustice. So I've appreciated the founders of the movement really drawing to that, like uh, Patrice and um, Alicia have said like racial injustice affects all of us within the community and everybody in, in, the, um, in the country, in the world. You can't say black lives matter if you don't mean all black lives matter, right? So facts, facts, facts. women are the most vulnerable, popular, they're the most susceptible to violence. We had 27, women be murdered and like uh, these cases aren't even being solved or even um, in the case of TT uh, in Oregon, her death was ruled a suicide and that they're not going to investigate it because it's not in the public interest, right? Like that is a horrific view of that life means that little to the community that they're not even going to explore the fact that it was a, a, a death. Mm. So, and even like you've seen black women Kiki Palmer being a prominent person saying like, when, when black women are saying, listen to our experience, they're met with this inherent misogyny that just counters, right? Of like, it's, it's, it's like a lot of mess that needs to be unpacked but addressed. But um, Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw had to essentially do this entire TED talk of saying, say their names, right? To include black women, to include trans women. Um, and even in DC, when we were doing these protests, like not two weeks ago and not even like a couple days ago, we were saying the men, they had signs of the men, but the women and the trans women are just like in, in the back burner. Um, so to me, that's like what we need to be aware. Like if our movement is to be successful, our movement needs to be intersectional. Mm -hmm. Um, and it needs to be centering the most vulnerable in order to create positive change and lasting sustainable change. So I'll say that again, in order for a movement to be um, successful, it needs to be intersectional. I, I thousand percent agree. Um, <laughs> again, that's why, that's why I wanted to, to get you on this, uh, on this show to just further explain and, and educate us. And when I say us, inclusive of myself, um, because I mean, there are people who you know listen to this podcast and say, Javi, I mean, everything you're saying, like, I mean, I, I know that shit, right? Like, just mm -hmm. me and my community, but I'm doing what I can. Uh, there are other people who listen to this show who have, you know, backgrounds that may not be in student affairs or higher ed. Obviously, understanding that everyone in higher ed and student affairs doesn't know this information as well. But, like, mm -hmm. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like, where do I start, right? So someone coming to you or someone listening to this podcast and was like, all right, like, that's some good shit. But, like, 
Javi, where do I start? Like, how, how do we best support that? How do, what, what, what do we say? Yeah. Um, and I think that's like the nature of Ani issues, right? Like, okay, how can I be an ally? I think for me, what I always start off as saying is like, there's always self-work that must be done, right? We, and I say this fully recognizing that I've made leaps and bounds of growth within my personal experience. And I'll, I like to use myself as an example, because I think that's like the best way to be vulnerable and to share experiences of my own personal growth. So I will say undergrad hobby of 2000, what year are we in 2020? Uh, 2000, I want to say like 12, mm-hmm. uh, that was like sophomore year of college. Like I had made aggressively transphobic jokes, right? Like didn't even oh, recognize that they were. It's taken me self-learning, understanding of where my biases come from, reading more on trans issues, reading more of why I might have these views and a lot of like internal work to then be able to vocalize why it is our responsibility as cisgendered individuals, um, as a man to then like be informed, support, but also know when to pass the mic. So I think that's another thing that we continuously talk about issues but not give the platform to the individuals that like are living that experience, right? Like, so for me, it's definitely like thinking about, okay, where, what do I not know about? What what do I want to know more about? And where are good resources? I will say good information to absorb because there is a lot of, I'm going to say just trash out there. Um, and, and just learning about, okay, like, if, if I'm having this thought, where is it coming from? Acknowledging it that, hey, it's probably problematic and saying, why am I, why do I think this way? Why does this make me uncomfortable? Um, how can I, I, like, reframe it? What, what, do I, what more do I need to learn in order to shift the mindset? Um, I think I can, we can all agree that, like, when it comes to issues of racism, like, when someone comes up like, oh, well, tell me how I can be, like, better for you, right? Like, First of all, like that's, have you done your own research? Are you prepared to have that conversation? Where are you in that personal growth? Um, same thing with other issues, specifically queer issues um, or trans issues. Like you don't just go up to someone and say, tell me about your life, right? Like you want to make a base understanding, write down like what questions that you have and, and respectfully go up to uh, have conversations with people and be like, how can I be better for you, right? Um, there's a lot of good resources um, from HRC to um, like activists. I think the age of social media and where we are now, it's so easy to be more connected. Um, there is that slight loss of like person versus communication, also like the whole pandemic going on too. Um, but you can read like people are placing themselves out there. Um, to talk about the issues. I just watched uh, an inter- uh, a documentary on Netflix, um, Disclosure, which talks about trans representation in media. Mm. And it, they're like literally, because they, um, Angela Ross, incredible actress, says like, I am putting myself out here because I have nothing else to lose. Um, and I'm here to make a statement, right? So like following those individuals who are like activists have... Um, resources and, and they talk about their experience to just learn more about it. Um, and then knowing that like, as an ally, even if you're a person of color, even if you believe yourself to be, I don't wanna say liberal uh, or progressive, cause I think those words are used as defense mechanisms sometimes. It's just knowing that you're gonna make a mistake, right? Like, and recognizing it when you're called out on the mistake, being in that discomfort and saying, okay, how, can I be better next time? Because allyship is not a destination. It's literally a journey, right? You, d- you don't have that experience, so you're going to mess up. Uh, but you need to surround yourself with people that will hold you accountable. You need to be receptive to that accountability, and you have to be willing to put in that work. Um, so depending on what individuals want to talk about, I'm happy to point them out to resources. Um, but I can't just, like, dump a Google Drive out for someone to be like, <laughs> this, right? Because there's a lot. Um, and... Some people will say, well, like, it's not credible or blah, blah, blah. But like, all of these issues have been researched by individuals, because there's also that this, sometimes the research is done from a different perspective. You and I know this from education. 
and it's spoken through a deficit mindset, not like there are plenty of queer scholars out there. There are black queer scholars. They talk about their experience. They know these things. So just read it, um, immerse yourself in it and, and know that it's a lot of work because it really is. No, no, it is. And, and again, <laughs> everything you're saying, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just thankful I'm talking to you. Um, but circling back, but also this thread that you spoke about, you know, earlier about the all Black Lives Matter movement is about racial injustice. Um, and although um, the meat, whether it's the media, or whether it's us as a collective that focused on police brutality, we see racial injustice in every system um, that exists within, you know, the United States of America. Uh, one in particular that I know mm -hmm. you have uh, a lot of experience in is education. And I'm, I'm intentional to say education and not higher ed because I know you have experience across K-12 as well. Uh, so talk to me about and talk to us about uh, the racial injustice, racial injustice you've seen within education, um, but then how we as a collective, um, you know, can best combat uh, and dismantle that as well. Education is truly interesting in that it's, okay, I'll say public education. Um, Dr. Spitzina, you like, we know that she's incredible and she talks about what is a public good? Um, what is a private good? I think in education, we've always, and Nelson Mandela said it's like, it's the great equalizer, right? It's the most powerful system, um, social change, I don't wanna say weapon, but uh, we'll say vehicle, right? Education is key. Edu education does open doors. I think we also need to recognize that our system of education in our country wasn't built for a lot of people from higher education to the public school system mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's been attacked right like we go back to after brown v board and we see like this white flight of public education and the preference to going into uh private schools and we see the defunding of education that's been rampant for the past 40 odd years um it's really recognizing that like there are large structural issues that can be, that are overwhelming. I'm gonna be honest, like working in education in the school system, like it's very overwhelming at times, but seeing how, what spheres influence you can address and support. So for me, it's always, okay, the curriculum that we're, that we're teaching, um, how am I showing up for my students? How am I showing up for my colleagues? Um, I'm not in the classroom doing instruction, uh, my work is uh, equity strategy and supporting the district from a central office perspective into the schools. Um, but I do get to engage with teachers. And part of that is, okay, when you're engaging your students, are you seeing them as a whole student? Are you prescribing your implicit biases into them? Also recognizing DC is a predominant, like our public school system, predominantly black and brown. Our teachers, um, are diverse, but we're still having um, similar racial disparities. As a, as a district, we're starting to switch from, well, black students aren't successful because X, Y, and Z. We switch into what systems persist that create disparities that impact students, right? So that is from our policy, our practice, um, our hiring practice, our instruction. So like, what can we pivot to start changing the system? Um, and for a teacher, I think it starts off as like seeing the student, right? Like they are a whole person. Um, students have lives outside of the classroom. Like what is happening in their lives? Um, <laughs> I've heard wild things of what like teachers have done to like, some of them intentional, some of them not intentional, but that like impacts the student, right? Like we, you and I have stories of like, there are times I never saw myself in the classroom. Um, a teacher has said something extremely racist, right? So for teachers, like, I think it's acknowledging the power that we have. Um, and when we're having conversations of like, are we centering the student's voice in the middle, right? Um, how are these policies that we're changing, this curriculum, this instruction, is, is it going to help students be successful? Um, our students collaborators in this instruction, in this learning and these policies, um, which there's a lot of great work that Teaching for Tolerance has done. Um, and uh, 
different organizations that focus on like students being co-conscriptors of knowledge and owners of knowledge and like shifting from this, here's your curriculum, here's your assessments that we see in K through 12 to what we see in college settings, right? Like more Socratic um, t uh, students are participating in that, in that knowledge. They are seen as experts of their experience, et cetera. Um, and really shifting that practice because even equity, diversity, equity, inclusion work that we see in K through in, in higher education looks very different in K through 12, right? Um, I remember thinking that once we have a, a college age student enter our campus, we're trying to address 18, 17 years worth of socialization in four years, which is like realistically not, we can do a lot of work, but we're not going to be like, you're going to be great, right? So when we start earlier, when we have conversations about race, inequality, um, engagement, and we pump money into the educational system, we see better outcomes. And that's not just like a student graduates, goes on to college, because college isn't for everyone, right? Like there's vocational practices. Um, there are other avenues of success. However, K through 12, like an equitable, good quality education does provide um, better life outcomes, not just for the individual, but also the community, right? Like when we invest in our communities, when we invest in our students, we see um, lower uh, rates of crime, we see uh, better um, life quality and better sense of belonging, we see engagement in the community, we see actual positive growth. But I think because we've seen like, well, education is expensive and like everybody has so many needs and blah, 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 that we've tried to just standardize it. We've disenfranchised so many students and so many kids fall through the cracks that then you're like, well, why do we have such a large problem, right? When we are systematically defunding a, an avenue for a better quality of life. So that's like my soapbox. Um, and I know when I run for office in the future, that will continue to be my soapbox of like education if we want to have a healthy, um, even when we have conversations with civility, like civil discourse, like education is the prime avenue, right? Um, it needs to be funded well, it needs to have uh, an equity lens and it needs to be supported um, to be equitable for students because just throwing money at the problem also won't fix it, right? Like you need to cater it to the needs of those who are participating within it. Um, and I will continue to say that public education is a public good, so we need to treat it as such, and that means that we need to invest in it heavily. Oh, Javi, man. Like I said, you're not <laughs> on the soapbox, uh, you, but you are on the Walk with TFV podcast. And again, I just appreciate you for uh, sharing all of that um, because a couple things that stood out to me um, was, of course, you know, using students, uh, utilizing students, excuse me, as collaborators within the process, mm -hmm. uh, particularly thinking about not just practicing policy, but also philosophy, right? Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of that, as you shared earlier, you know, looking at systems as opposed to this deficit mindset on the student um, is rooted in language. Um, and so anyone that's spoken to me um, about college athletics at any point in time, I mentioned my frustration with calling or referring to college athletes as, as kids or children. Um, because again, mm -hmm. it reinforces this power dynamic in which you know, kids and children are dependent on a, um, a resource. Uh, and then we cannot, cannot expect them to um, advance and really evolve into this self-authoring self um, that, you know, Magoda talks about um, in their research. And so what can transition into segment three, right, in regards to how I can best support you, how our listening community can best support you, what can we do uh, to be mindful of language, to be mindful to root equity and justice in our practice, policy, and philosophy, um, but what can we do to best support you um, in, your, in the, the, the trending topics you discussed with us today? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a lot. Uh, there's Thankfully, there are like petitions out there, there are town halls, there are, there are a lot of opportunities to become involved. Um, I think I will continue to, to, to hammer in that like there is a lot of self work that we need to be mindful of. So we are informed that when we are engaging in the work, we're coming from an informed um, place and we can be a better advocate when we're informed. But it's also really just getting involved. Um, I think that we typically look at change happening from a federal perspective, right? Like that will change, right? Um, 
I firmly believe that a lot of the apathy that a lot of individuals have um, in our system or in our country comes from the fact that when something happens at the tippy tippy top of the federal system, it doesn't immediately impact them. So it's about really looking at, do you know who your um, mayor is? Do you know who your uh, uh, educational board is, right? Like, do you know your community leaders? Are they um, good stewards of like their constituents? I think most people like think of like statewide um, stuff or statewide issues or, or, or federal issues. Um, but really, like, the, our locus of control really does lie within where we are. Um, and civic, civic engagement also means getting involved in, like, your local uh, affairs, just because funding really comes from, like, there are town halls that happen, the mayor has to discuss the budget, the council votes for it, et cetera, right? So then, like, asking those questions. A lot of the times, a lot of individuals don't run opposed because people don't see... I don't want to say like the popularity or like the attraction of local politics, but like, that's the reality, right? DC is a, a hilarious, I'll, I'll, and I'll say hilarious just because it's just very interesting. Like DC is not a state, right? We are a city that operates with the budget that's larger than a lot of states with a population that's larger than a couple of states, et cetera. But our politics are very much of local politics. So living here has shown me like how much different the community is engaged with our local government because our local government is our only form of government outside of the federal. Um, and I will tell you like the lack of representation for DC is garbage. Um, and I will say this attraction to statehood for DC really has come after aggressive gentrification, right? Like DC is now about 46% um, black. It used to be 80, 90% black, and like the idea of statehood wasn't even in the purview of a lot of people, right? Um, DC becoming a state will give power to the black community because um, of like our uh, critical mass in the area. But even then, we need to acknowledge DC doesn't look the same like it did in the 80s and the 90s, right? The individuals who will present our district as a state will more than likely come from communities that will live in wards. Um, seven and eight, right? Like we have our own issues. Um, and it starts from, okay, so then why are you giving seven and eight, which are the, the most, uh, the largest populations of black African-American um, and Hispanics, they have um, food deserts, meaning that w within a, a half mile, there's no grocery store or a place to acquire groceries. They have a hospital desert. So obviously like there's no large hospital. So it's like going into when the mayor provide, uh, proposes our budget, which is aggressively large. I think it's larger than 21 states. Um, it's like, okay, we want to do all these things, but what are you doing with Ward 7 and 8? Like, these aren't the quote-unquote um, historical parts or the money revenue, uh, revenue generating, but why aren't you putting the dollars to improve and support that community? Mm -hmm. um, and that even goes into education, right? Like, there are schools in wards seven and eight. Those are the schools where they, they might be receiving the least amount of funding. Um, they might not have the resources that other schools have, right? So it's really just being involved in caring about your community because if we only focus on the national level or the state level in terms of issues, you really won't see immediate impact. And I don't say immediate as in like it will change day and night, it's really seeing like a federal law, as we know, all as the black community know, does not change or wipe out issues, systemic issues, right? There are in positions of power that will find loopholes that will change language. Racism has evolved aggressively. Sexism has evolved aggressively. So if you are not supporting local individuals um, who then grow their portfolio, grow their experience to then run for a higher office, you're not really going to see a systemic change because there are still people in positions of power who might talk the talk outdoors, but indoors are making horrific decisions. You're not going to see systemic change. You're not going to see sustainable change. It will quell the masses for a couple of years and we will restart the cycle again of 
why aren't these things happening, blah, blah, blah. And you're gonna be met with, well, all these things have been changed, right? And then you look at the local community, really it hasn't changed much. That is well said. I think, um, I mean, really to synthesize everything you said is, is that we need to start, start close and go far. Uh, mm-hmm. We can't expect things to, uh, to change if we, if we don't focus on, you know, what's near um, and next to us. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing that, Javi. Um, how can people get in contact with you after listening to this episode? Oh, <laughs> um, you can follow me on Instagram, um, Javi Platano. So that's J-A-V-I-P-L-A-T-A-N-O. Um, you can feel free to reach out through there. Uh, and I'm happy to, after we make a connection, um, also find me on Facebook, message me a message. I'm, I'm happy to build a relationship off of that. Um, I'm pretty sure all my handles are public anyway, so have at it. <laughs> I'll be sure to include uh, your Instagram, well, your social handles um, in the uh, description to this show. Um, but you started this episode by calling me future Dr. Bryson. And I had to conclude by saying thank you again to future Dr. Javi Rodriguez. Uh, for not just your time, but really your talent, um, your expertise, uh, honestly, your mind. Uh, as I said before, you're a generational leader, um, someone that we're going to need um, in, uh, to do great work, uh, not just within this country, um, but within the world. And so I definitely appreciate you, you know, spending some time with us today. Um, for everyone else, um, I hope you've taken a lot of notes, and if not, uh, rewind the last um, you know, tens of minutes to take some notes on what Javi has talked about today. Um, I know for me, the, the thing that stuck out the most is that, you know, this movement, this all Black Lives Matter movement will not be successful um, if this movement is not intersectional. And again, that's uh, directly from the future doctor himself. Um, <laughs> thank you all again for spending time with us on the Walk with TAB podcast. If you have not already, uh, be sure you head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review uh, the show. Uh, five stars are great, but only if you mean it. Um, definitely look forward to having a more unfiltered conversation with authentic people centered on education, sport, and culture in the future. But until then, walk with me.